0: Mark chapter 2, verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sues a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some ears of corn. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Our second reading can be found in Isaiah chapter 58, verses 13 and 14. That's on page 745. Isaiah 58 verses 13 and 14. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Could you um, open your Bibles again at Mark chapter 2, if you've just closed them? and we'll work our way through. Let's pray before we start. Heavenly Father, we thank you this evening that you, your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Thank you that your word is there for our good and to help us follow Jesus more closely. We pray that by your mighty Holy Spirit, you would help each one of us here tonight, wherever we are, in our walk with you, wherever we are, that we would hear your voice, and uh, having heard what you say to us, you would help us to take action. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of today's talk is What's So Different About Jesus? Jesus constantly surprises people. He surprised the people of first-century Palestine as he was not the Messiah that they were expecting. No political leader, coming to set up an earthly kingdom he surprises us today he was and is markedly different from any other leader not surprising when you know he's God in what ways was he different what ways uh, when he walked the earth and what ways was he different and if you're taking notes here are some headings first one Jesus was different in his attitude to people no one was beyond his reach or concern Jesus was different in his attitude to people. No one was beyond his reach or concern. Uh, Look again at verses 13 to 17. Uh, And we read here that as Jesus was walking along the lakeside, a large crowd came to him and he began to teach them, but then he continued walking along and he comes across Levi. Jesus was preaching in Galilee, the region at the northern end of the inland sea or lake of the same name. And as I said, as he walked, he saw this tax collector Levi sitting in his booth. Now Levi was later given the name, um, the apostolic name Matthew. It was he who wrote the first gospel in the New Testament. So when we read about this same incident in Matthew chapter 9, uh, Matthew gives himself his new name. Jewish, t- Jewish tax collectors were regarded as traitors to their nation. They exacted what taxes were required by the authorities. And then took a slice for themselves. Not surprisingly, therefore, they were mostly wealthy and incredibly unpopular. Sorry, thanks. No doubt uh, Levi would have been ostracized by most people in that place, including the religious leaders. And I imagine that as Jesus and his disciples came along and there was Levi in his booth, the disciples made to walk past. You know, this was an incredibly unpopular man but not Jesus. He stopped, and he spoke to Levi in such a way that he immediately got up and followed him. What made a hardened, dishonest tax collector do that? Surely it was the authority with which Jesus spoke. Surely it was also the fact that here was someone who'd bothered to talk to him rather than sneer, who could see that behind the bravado, was someone who now knew that all the money in the world could not cure the ache in his soul, and someone who instinctively knew that Jesus had the answer to that. I think many, many people today um, just have no idea of the authority that Jesus commanded then and commands now. If you talk to people in the street or even at work, They probably use the name of Jesus as a swear word and think no more about it. I was talking to somebody this morning who was at a a party over the weekend and uh, having thought she might meet some Christians, realized that she was probably the only Christian there. And when it uh, emerged that she was a Christian, she met nothing but sneers. And people sort of saying, you know, how could you, a sort of reasonably normal person, and she's very normal actually, how could you possibly believe in God and in Jesus? You see, people today have absolutely no idea of the impact that Jesus made then and makes today. And clearly, he had such an impact on Levi that he called all his work colleagues and other contacts to a party at his home. Luke, in his gospel, describes it as a great banquet. And I imagine that Luke, um, Levi, was so thrilled at meeting Jesus, so thrilled at what he discovered But he wanted everyone to know about it, so he threw this great party. And with the hospitality weekend in mind in July, uh, let's note how God loves it when we open our homes and use them for his service. Whether or not our home is a palace or it's a tiny one-bedroom flat somewhere, Um, God loves it when we use our homes in that way. And we read that the religious leaders, the Pharisees, criticized Jesus for the company he was keeping. Why did he not stay with those who were decent and respectable instead of riffrapped like tax collectors and sinners? And this happened to Jesus again and again throughout the Gospels. And he himself quoted some of the criticism leveled at him. In, uh, in Matthew eleven nineteen, we read Jesus himself quoting... Uh, words that were said to him, look at this glutton and drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. See, Jesus in many people's eyes was seen as a glutton because presumably he ate meals, he went to parties, he was a drunkard, presumably he drank wine, and he was a friend of the outcasts of society, whether they were wealthy or poor. Now what about you and me? Do we only speak about our faith to those that are what I would call easy targets for the gospel? Uh, People who are very who know who have an obvious need of the gospel. Not like Levi, who apparently had everything. I mean, he was a very unpleasant character, but he was a man of great power. What about the people we know who have a terrible reputation? What about the person in the office who always sails just a bit close to the wind? What about the girl in the tennis club who's very unpopular? By contrast, what about our boss? a person of the utmost integrity, but who proclaims that they have no need of God. Yes, we are called to go out to the poor and the vulnerable, but we are also called to go right across the social scale, to those whose spiritual needs may be much more hidden. Do we, like Jesus, look beyond the facade? Are we different in our attitude to people? But there's more in this incident. What was Jesus' reply to this criticism? Look at verse 17. It's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. The mission of Jesus was to go as a spiritual doctor to all those like Matthew. Those like him who knew that there was a sickness in his soul that needed putting right. And that sickness was to do with sin. And, you know, people sometimes say we have to explain what sin is. I think most people actually know what sin is. It's as if, despite the fact that our consciences can be very dulled, perhaps in specific areas, I think if you tell people about sin, they don't like it, but I think they know what it is. And in following Jesus, Matthew's soul sickness was cured. His life was transformed, and he went on to live a life of extraordinary impact for the gospel. Just this morning, we were saying farewell, rather, John was saying farewell to two young men about to go off to university. They've been through rooted and they're going off. And we as a congregation said farewell and prayed for them. And I I was looking at them and I was thinking they've got the whole of their lives ahead of them. I wonder, you know, that's a, a great moment for choosing and looking at where you're going to go in your life. And it's a very exciting moment but it's a time, and I guess all of us of whatever age, it's a good moment to stop and say, is my life counting? Are the uh, decisions and the thoughts and the actions and the words that I say every day, are they having an impact for eternity, for good? What does soul sickness feel like? It may be a vague sense of unease, You may have made or be on the way to making a great success in the world's eyes, or you may have married somebody like that. But somehow all the trappings and glittering prizes are not enough. So it may be that kind of vague sense of unease, or it may be something much more dramatic. Listen to these words. I let myself be lured into long spells of senseless and sensual ease. Tired of being on the heights, I deliberately went to the depths in search for new sensation. I grew careless of the lives of others. I took pleasure where it pleased me and passed on. I forgot that every little action of the common day makes or unmakes character, and that therefore what one has done in the secret chamber one has someday to cry aloud from the housetop. I ceased to be lord over myself. I was no longer the captain of my soul and did not know it. I wonder if you know who said that. It was Oscar Wilde shortly before his death in 1900. That is what soul sickness in lo- is like. There are millions of people who know exactly what that feels like. But equally, there are millions, have been millions throughout the centuries, who've discovered, like Matthew, that only Jesus can cure it, but he can cure it wonderfully. And maybe, I don't know, maybe there's someone today who, and you know, you're suffering from soul sickness. Do something about it. Speak to one of the clergy or the Christian friend who's brought you to church. Start following Jesus, the great physician of your soul. And please note the words at the end of this section in verse 17, when Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. There's only one kind of person that Jesus cannot help, That's the person who considers themselves righteous, who sees no need of a soul doctor. They'll say things like, well, I may have done some things that were not quite right, but basically I'm fine. I've no need of God. Pray for anyone that you know like that. Pray that God, by his mighty Holy Spirit, would open their eyes to their true state before God. So Jesus was different in his approach to people. No one was beyond his reach or concern, and I love that about him. Secondly, he was different in his approach to religious observance. With his coming, everything was changed. Look at verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? "'Jesus answered, "'How can the guests of the bridegroom fast "'while he's with them? "'They cannot, so long as they have him with them. "'But the time will come "'when the bridegroom will be taken from them, "'and on that day they will fast. "'No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth "'on an old garment. "'If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, "'making the tear worse, "'and no one pours new wine into old wineskins. "'If he does, the wine will burst the skins,' and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. The disciples of John the Baptist were fasting either because John was in prison or possibly as a sign of repentance. The Pharisees were at this time fasting twice a week, although the law of Moses, which they professed to follow, only commanded a fast on the Day of Atonement. So Jesus' disciples came to him and said, why Why did they not fast too? And Jesus' reply was to compare himself with the bridegroom and them as guests at a wedding. Since a wedding was a joyful occasion, it would be quite wrong to fast in that time. But look again at verse 20. Jesus, in that verse, right at the beginning of the gospel, right at the beginning of his ministry, is looking ahead to his death. He says there'll be a time when the bridegroom is no longer with you. That will be a time uh, for sorrow. Fasting would then be appropriate. Jesus then went on to talk about the change he was bringing in with the kingdom. It was not only changes about fasting, it was everything. And it was impossible to try to combine the old with the new. It wouldn't work. Like trying to patch an old item of clothing with a new unshrunken piece of cloth. The picture there is that uh, the garment gets wet and the patch that got the new bit of cloth that new unshrunken bit then shrinks in the water and it, uh, it tears from the old garment uh, or the wine putting new wine into old wineskins. wine bottles in those days were made of animal skin and if the garment if um, uh, new skins had an elasticity you, know, you could mould them easily And when the new wine, which was very gassy and bubbly, was added into new wineskins, they had enough give to give way to the pressure of the gases. Old wineskins were hardened, they had no give, and the result would be an explosion, with both bottle and wine lost. And Jesus was explaining that with the coming of the kingdom, everything had changed. It was no good trying to mix old religion with what he was bringing. It wouldn't work. Now, Jesus was saying here that, that with him, many of the old rules and regulations that had grown up quite unbiblically all had to be done away with. It wasn't that he was abolishing the law. In fact, Jesus said he'd come to fulfill the law, but he being God in the flesh, put the correct uh, emphasis on it. And in the early church, attempts were made to mix old and new religion. And in fact, Paul's letter to the Galatians covers just that point. There were new Christian converts at Galatia and they were, they were following Jesus really well until some heretical teachers arrived and said, yes, salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ, but you need to keep up the old Jewish regulations. You need to be circumcised, etc., etc." And Paul writes actually among his strongest words in that letter, he says, who hindered you? You were doing so well, what stopped you? And he has this wonderful thing that um, we were, were meant to be free. We were meant to be freed from slavery. And these Galatians were seeking to go back into the old slavery of following rules and regulations to try to please God when Jesus had set them free from all of that. And I want to say that to me is one of the most liberating things about being a Christian. You are set free from the opinion of others. You are set free from everything. All that matters is what God thinks about you. When I first went to university, I I was really a very half-hearted Christian. And uh, I did go along to the Christian Union, um, and I knew the religious words to use. But if I was in a group of people, for example, who were atheists, and coming from very religious Northern Ireland, I'd never met an atheist till I went to university, um, I got very adept at if I could see the conversation was coming around to saying, and what about you, Tricia? What do you think about this? I got very adept at steering the conversation away because I didn't want to... I was afraid, really, of what these people might think of me. And more than that, I'd gone to a Christian Union meeting, my very first one. I had worn what for me was totally normal clothing, a black leather skirt, quite short, and black leather boots, and apparently caused a sensation. And I thought... Wow, you know, I don't want to be put into a mold. I want to be myself. And, of course, I'd got it quite wrong. They were actually lovely, lovely praying people. But what I'd got wrong was I thought I had to look like them. And one of the most liberating things about being a Christian is Jesus says, No, I made you as you are. I want you to serve me as I made you. Holy, yes, but I want you to serve me as i made you not like someone else and i just find that very very liberating the other side of this is trying to accommodate the world's thinking with our christian faith Um, the galatians were trying to accommodate christian uh sorry religious uh regulations with their new christian faith but we can also try and accommodate the world's thinking And Christians have always been called to be counter-cultural. This is nothing new. And not to go along with whatever is is popular. Um, It was David Cameron, I think, who famously said a few years ago, the church has got to get with the program. No, the church has never had to get with the program. The church is calling, and therefore the calling of every Christian is to stand back and stand up for Jesus and be counter-cultural. but I'm not talking here, of course, about the clear and unequivocal teaching of Scripture. Yes, Jesus came to say rules and regulations don't matter, but there's a kernel of truth within Scripture that we dare not change. It's no good saying, well, you know, culture's now thinking differently, therefore we can sort of bend Scripture according to culture. That's not true at all. There is clear and unequivocal teaching in Scripture about many matters, and we are Are not permitted by God to change that. But about matters such as how you dress, as long as it's decent, how you worship, whether you put your hands in the air or you don't, what method of evangelism you use. Do you you know one of the greatest sadnesses to me is that Christians can be judged by whether or not the church they attend does Alpha or Christianity Explored. Both superb courses, both quite different, and I think it's of the greatest sadness that there's a kind of judgmentalism even among about that. That kind of one-fits-all prescription is not God's will for you or for any Christian. Are you, am I, living within the new wineskins? Jesus was different in his approach to religious observance. With his coming, everything was changed. And a key example of this was the keeping of the Sabbath. So this is my final point. Jesus was his different in his approach to the Sabbath. It was made for our delight in God's goodness. When Jesus walked the earth, a whole host of regulations had grown up around the Sabbath. All work was forbidden. Work, wait for this, had been classified under 39 different headings. Four of these headings were reaping, winnowing, where the good wheat would be separated from the useless chaff, threshing, and preparing a meal. Pulling ears of corn was reaping. So in this, the last little section of this passage, you'll see the, as the disciples were walking along, they were pulling, plucking ears of corn. Other areas considered work, included included, um, writing or erasing two or more letters of the alphabet, kindling or extinguishing a fire. Even walking was forbidden. It was incredible, really, how something that God intended to be a blessing, had been hedged around with this great mass of rules and regulations. So here the Pharisees took the opportunity to criticize the disciples. Um, Look at verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some ears of corn. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Jesus answered the Pharisees by referring them back to an incident in the Old Testament that they would have known well. You can read about it in 1 Samuel chapter 21. David, one of their most revered kings, when on the run from King Saul, entered the tabernacle, and as they were tired and hungry, took for his companions and himself the consecrated bread, which was lawful only for priests to eat. The Pharisees knew that Scripture did not criticize David for this breaking of the rules. And Jesus linked this with the Sabbath. Jesus claimed that the Sabbath was made for the good of humanity, not for the sake per se of following the rules. And he went on to make what for them was the even more astonishing claim that he, the Son of Man, was Lord even of the Sabbath. Only God could make a claim like that. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath because he invented it. Think back to Genesis 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. On the seventh day, he rested from all his work, and God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And then in Exodus 20, we read the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. God as our creator designed us in such a way that we would have a Sabbath once a week. He knows what our bodies and our minds need. And I love this, you know, Jesus was the one who invented the work-life balance. People think that the idea of the work-life balance is terribly new and terribly modern, you know, for our 24-7 age. Not a bit of it. God invented it right at the beginning, made us in such a way that we need a Sabbath every week. And we ignore that at our peril. And listen to the blessings that come when we get this right. That's why I asked Timo to read out from Isaiah 58. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's day honorable, Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. In a word, when we get the Sabbath right, the answer is joy. The result is joy. God wants us to enjoy the Sabbath, which normally we observe on Sundays. I wonder what your experience of the Sabbath is. Until 1994, almost no shops could trade on a Sunday in England and Wales. There was no professional sport. There was no school sport. All that happened on Saturdays. Everything in most towns and villages was very, very quiet. And sometimes it could be very, very boring. Now all that has changed. Instead of Sunday being a special day... It's no different, at any rate, from Saturday's. And as a Christian, you have to work hard to keep it special. Now, that word special is very important to me. Long before I knew that I was going to marry a clergyman, I made a habit of asking clergy children who'd grown up as Christians and kept the faith, what was it that helped them to do that? I will never forget the answer of one girl, one student I asked. This was her reply. and She was the daughter of a clergyman, um, Uh, uh, not an Anglican but she was the daughter of a clergyman lovely lovely gifted man here was her reply Sundays were always special on a day when it could easily appear to a child that daddy or mummy spent all day in church she remembered it as a day of fun and joy and so when I married Charles we determined that we would do that too so we always had pudding at Sunday lunch Sundays were the days for sweets or cake. Now, I have to say that my husband didn't always observe that. So, if it was his turn to do the school run and pick the girls up from school, quite often he would stop off at the bakery in the village and they would come home with cream buns. But anyway, the principal was there. We wanted to make Sundays special. And for 13 years, I didn't attend the evening service, but instead we had fun sitting in front of a log fire if it was winter reading great books or playing games while Daddy was out taking the evening service. And when our girls were younger and still not making their own decisions, they were forbidden to do homework on Sundays. And I still remember one of them saying how glad she was, and she was coming up to some big exams at school. How glad she was we had that rule, as she had realized she would have got very tired just revising nonstop. So we tried to make Sundays special. And that quote from Isaiah shows how God intended Sundays to be. It was to be a delight, a time to honor God by worshiping him with his people, a time not to go our own way. Now, it's very, very easy to get legalistic like this, very easy to get become judgmental about others. But I would encourage you to think of the ways you could make Sundays more of a rest day, more of a delight, more of a special day, a time to honor God. For the need is to be be refreshed in body, mind, and soul. And of course, we always have to make caveats for those who have to work on Sundays, not just the clergy, but those who work in the emergency and caring professions and so on. Those of us like that have a responsibility to make sure we do keep the Sabbath. And I freely confess that in the past, Charles and I have not been always good at that. But we have changed. I think some people think we haven't, but actually we really have changed, and we're all the better for it. So be creative. Think about Sundays, about your Sabbath. Could you take a Sabbath each Sunday from social media? (gasps) Gasp, horror, from emailing. Could you cook Sunday lunch on Saturday so you don't have to do a lot of cooking on Sunday? Um, When you have children, if any of you here have children, do they realize that Sundays are special? Are there team or social activities that are keeping you from church? If so, why not just say to people, I'm sorry, church is non-negotiable. Now, we'll all come to different conclusions about how we do this. But actually, the command to observe the Sabbath is there, not to make us feel gloomy, but for our own good and for our joy. And I think as Christians, we're called to make, I think it can be one of our parts of our witness to others that they see we have this great day once a week which is full of joy which is full of fun and uh, we have a, a rest. Jesus never meant us to have regulations about the Sabbath any more than he meant the Pharisees to. In this passage he showed us how we're meant to use it for our blessing and for us to delight with his people in his goodness for our souls as well as our bodies and minds to be restored. Let's bring back the Sabbath. Let's keep Sunday special. So, do you value the differentness of Jesus? How much do these principles have a part in your life and mine? Are we different in our attitude to people? Do we go right across the board in uh, trying to talk to people about our faith? In the way we live out our faith in the kingdom? Is it clear to others that we've been set free from religious observance that's way back from the past and we have a relationship with a risen Savior? Are we different in the way we celebrate the Sabbath? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for all that we've learned tonight. We thank you so much that your will for every Christian is that we should be free, uh, free from everything except... Um, just knowing that we serve you and honor you. And that makes us free in every other areas of our lives. Heavenly Father, as we think about our attitude to other people, as we think about maybe the little rules and regulations that we've brought into our own lives, or maybe we've been judgmental about other Christians, as we think about the way we observe Sunday, that day that was meant to be a day of joy and rest and recreation, Help us, Lord, speak to us tonight by your mighty Holy Spirit and fill each one of us with the joy of serving you and honoring you and living in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.